Imagine you're woken at 3 a.m. by the police at your door. Imagine they ask if your loved one is there, but you haven't seen her in days. Imagine dealing with the trauma of that loved one being missing for months and police saying she was murdered by her husband. You wait five years for justice, for the murderer to be jailed, and you say goodbye to your loved one at a special memorial service. And then you get a phone call. Imagine the person on the other end of the line tells you, I'm sorry, he's free. I'm Dale Haslam. I'm an investigative journalist at the Press and Journal. And in this episode, I'm going to examine the explosive story of how convicted killer Nat Fraser was allowed to leave prison in 2006. You're listening to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. A true crime podcast from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. Episode 5, released. Many listening will wonder how this could have possibly been allowed to happen. After all, we have Arlene Fraser, a 33-year-old mum of two, missing and declared murdered. Police say the only person who could have ordered the killing was her husband, Nat Fraser. The Crown agreed, and so did a jury. Nat was convicted and jailed for 25 years. So how did it go from life sentence to liberty in a matter of months? First, we have to say there's an important technical detail you should know. What happened was new evidence emerged that cast doubt over Nat Fraser's conviction. There were two things, the lip reader and the rings. And I'm going to tell you everything I found out about these two crucial aspects of the Arlene Fraser case. In the last episode, we learned that one of the witnesses called to the stand in Nat Fraser's trial was Jessica Reese. Reese was a lip reader trusted by prosecutors to study video recordings that didn't have sound. Some of these recordings were shot by undercover officers from afar and some appeared on CCTV cameras. Others were recorded in prison. All of them had no sound and so police needed someone who could pick up on the conversation topic without having to hear it. And it was Reese's analysis of secretly recorded prison conversations between Nat Fraser and his friend, Glenn Lucas, that was pivotal in convincing the jury that Nat was guilty. But in 2005, doubts began to emerge about Reese. Journalists accused her of lying about having a university degree, and she admitted it. From then on, things quickly began to unravel. Other lip readers started to look over Reese's work and what they found was not good. They concluded that Reese's transcripts were unreliable and that had massive implications. You see, even if an expert witness's work is essentially good and helpful, that isn't enough for the courts. It has to be bulletproof 
It has to leave the jury without any doubt whatsoever about the monumental decision they have to make. And in the case of Jessica Reese, it wasn't enough. As concerns emerged about Reese's ability, the authorities agreed to stop using her as a lip reader in criminal cases. Retired Superintendent Alan Smith, who worked on the Arlene Fraser case, says he always had reservations about asking a lip reader for help. She was desperate to help us because obviously we, we were paying her, but it never, never struck me as being here beauty. There was never a high-five moment. There was bits and pieces. Alan says Jessica Reese claimed not to have researched the Alan Fraser case before watching the tapes, something he doubts. Alan explains what Jessica Reese told police about what Nat had said on those tapes. There was something about a lock-up garage in the car, and that spawned a heck of a line of inquiry to go and visit every lock-up garage in Elgin. That, that led to nothing. And, you know, why, why would Nat and, and Glenn get into that level of the second flaw in the case against Nat concerned three rings. Three rings belonging to Arlene. These were the rings Nat had given Arlene when they got engaged, when they got married, and then later as an apology after a row. When police first arrived on the scene the day Arlene went missing, two officers spotted the rings. And you may remember in episode two, we mentioned a camcorder video that police used to film Arlene's house at 2 Smith Street in New Elgin. It was filmed the day after Arlene was reported missing. And what's fascinating about this video is that despite touring the entire house in fine detail, there is no sign of the rings. Then the rings turned up again. A week after Arlene went missing, her stepmother, Catherine McInnes found the rings in the bathroom. So what we know is that the rings were there one day, gone the next, and then back later. So why is this important? Well, during the trial, the Crown argued that Nat had removed these three rings from Arlene's dead body and then taken them back to the house in the days after Arlene went missing. He wanted to make it look at least according to the Crown, that Arlene had suddenly decided to take off the rings and walk out on her family. But when it emerged, the two police officers saw the rings in the house on the day Arlene went missing. It became clear that the Crown's version of events could not be true. It was peculiar that they went missing and reappeared. And there have been countless theories about what happened. A lot of people had access to Arlene's house at 2 Smith Street in the week after she vanished. And so anything could have happened. We'll simply never know who removed the rings from the house and who put them back. But ultimately, the Crown should have told Nat's legal team about the missing rings, and they didn't. In fact, the Crown was duty bound to reveal this information. When the two sides are preparing for a trial, there is a process called disclosure which ensures each side is fully aware of the evidence that will be presented. That, of course, ensures both sides can prepare. And Nat Fraser's team, being completely in the dark about the rings, put them 
at an unfair disadvantage when the rings were mentioned. Once doubts about the lip reader and the rings emerged, the lawyers had to get to the bottom of it all. But it was going to take time, a lot of time. And that left the courts with a moral dilemma. Was it fair to keep Nat Fraser in jail in the meantime? On the one hand, he was a convicted killer. But on the other hand, they knew at the time that this new development could end up clearing Nat's name. They had to consider, was it right for him to remain behind bars? Their conclusion was no. The courts decided to let Nat go as a temporary measure. So Nat Fraser was allowed to go home in 2006. It meant Nat was in a state of limbo. Sure, he was able to walk the streets, but he was still a convicted murderer. And that state of limbo would remain until one of three things happened. One, an appeal was successful, in which case Nat would have his conviction quashed and remain free. Two, an appeal failed, in which case the conviction would stand and he would be returned to jail. Or three, a court decided to recall Nat Fraser to prison. In the end, the courts did recall Nat back to jail in 2007, but not before all hell broke loose in Elgin. Alan Smith remembers clear as day what happened the moment he found out Nat was out of custody. I was in a Tesco park, car park in Dingwall and I got the phone call. Um, and I just sat there for about an hour on my own and, and mulled over what the consequences were. I was utterly devastated, obviously. Also for the family, I phoned uh, Carol, the sister. Yeah. It was immediately obvious that, you know, they, 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 they knew the way I had gone and, like us, they were just gutted. Another of those affected by natural release was Michelle Scott, Arlene's best friend. Michelle had reported strange events to the police in the weeks after Arlene went missing in 1998. An unknown man had broken into her flat and only left when he saw Michelle's friend, Marion Taylor, on the sofa. There were also other incidents back then. Michelle said she saw a suspicious man on a motorbike hanging around outside her home on several occasions and then making peculiar requests on the door intercom. And Marion, who was working as a driving instructor back then, claimed someone almost crashed into her car and someone else tried to disable her brakes. None of this is conclusive. None of it can be categorically put at Nat's door. But I mention it to illustrate how on edge, how nervous people were when Nat returned to Elgin after being released in 2006. So I asked Michelle Scott about it. I just thought, oh my God, he's back in Elgin. Because when he was away, it was, I'm trying to think how, how it worked. It's, it's not that I didn't feel safe when he came back. You know, yeah. you, you just thought, right, he's away. That's fine, he's in jail and everything. but. When he came back, I just thought he's going to be, he's got to be come back and he's just, it's just going to be as if nothing, you know, nothing's yeah. happened. A lot of people in that situation would have kept a low profile, avoided the limelight, but not Nat. This was the man who, in the months after Arlene vanished, changed the name of his band from the Minesweepers to the Nat Fraser Band. 
He saw his own wife's disappearance as an opportunity to gain fans. And it gets worse. Nat Fraser also brought new songs into the band's set, including Lying Eyes by the Eagles. Oh, unquestionably. I mean, I mean, there was a website for heaven's sake, Innocence for Nat or something like that. Yeah. Sorry, featured. You know, there was this juxtaposition uh, where you were either in the camp or out of the camp. You pro Nat or aren't you? And while he was back out, Nat squared up for round two of his fight with the police, the Crown and Arlene's family and friends. And there was one particular incident that lit the touch paper. It all happened in the heart of Elgin. One night, Arlene's friends, Michelle Scott and Marion Taylor, visited Dicey's Bar on Elgin High Street to let their hair down. Here is Marion to tell the story. Were you there at the time? I was actually up singing in the karaoke. My friend Carol came up and she went, Marion. Um, and I said, what is it? She goes, not Fraser, she asked. She goes, he's absolutely staring at you. And I went, you're joking. So I finished whatever I had. And he was standing at the bar, clapping away as if to say, oh, I enjoyed that. Smiling away. And then he turned around in the same breath and says to Michelle, where's your pal tonight, Ben? And she went, what pal? And he goes, and he was there and he just turned round and said, well, where's your friend now then? Michelle went to punch him. We all got chucked out. He stood there and laughed at us and said, get them out. He, he came out of the pub and we'd actually called the police. And the police came and we said what happened. And they went, girls, the best thing you can do is just go on your way. You just thought, how you for the gall, you know, to stand there and say, well, where's your friend now then? There's no need for you to say that. And we just left. And we just thought, that's how it's got to be. He's just got to warn yeah. about Elgin and as if nothing's happened. This all happened in 2006. And to the relief of many, Nat Fraser was returned to prison a year later. You see, there was no clear guidance in Scottish law about whether Nat should or should not be behind bars. Some people, and some legal experts, believed he should remain out of prison until he had exhausted all the appeal avenues open to him under UK law. And others believed that whatever the status of his appeal battles, he was still a convicted murderer, and so he should be in jail until he was cleared. It was that second argument that won the day in 2007, and so the court sent Nat back to a cell. But things were all about to change again in 2011. Armed with the new information about the lip reader and the rings, Nat's team went to the Supreme Court. And in 2011, five judges ruled that Nat Fraser's conviction was unsafe. Not only was Nat free once again, he also had the murder conviction removed from his record. It's important at this point to stop and consider the position of prosecutors back in 2011. By then, police and the Crown had been working on this case for 13 years. They had faced media pressure, criticism from some Elgin residents and uncomfortable questions about aspects of the investigation. The easiest option would have been to call it quits, call off the dogs. But... To Nat Fraser's displeasure, that's not what they did. 
The Crown announced immediately after Nat was cleared it would prosecute Nat for the murder of his wife Arlene all over again. That meant there would be a new trial and Nat would be served with a new indictment accusing him of murder. It meant rebooting the court process, going back to square one. And so there would be another court hearing in which many of the witnesses from the first trial would be called and it was met with a mixed reaction from Arlene's family. They knew that old wounds would be reopened once again in court and they feared Nat Fraser might walk free because police never found Arlene's body. But overall, they felt relieved that the Crown didn't give up hope. Here's Alan Smith again. I just remember the immense relief that the Crown had the appetite to reindict him and use the same evidence twice. You know, it would have been very easy for the Crown to say, you know what, this is in the too hard category here, you know. Um, we, we gave it a fair chance. That injected a, a lot of um, light back into the investigation. Nat Fraser being free in Elgin did offer police at least one advantage. Detectives got permission from the courts to have Nat watched, to see if he made a mistake that would perhaps lead them to Arlene's body. On the night before the trial started, I was part of an operation that had him surveilled from Elgin to the court. We wanted to see if he was going straight to the court or who he was meeting or, you know, was there anything going on there? Sadly for detectives... That undercover operation didn't give police any clues about where Arlene's body was. And in any case, it came to an abrupt end because on the first day of the second trial, Nat Fraser was remanded in custody, pending the outcome of that trial. In 2012, the second trial got underway at the High Court in Edinburgh, and the man tasked with putting Nat Fraser back behind bars was Alex Prentice, KC. Mr Prentice is one of the most prominent prosecutors in Scotland, if not the most prominent. Mr Prentice may sound familiar to those of you who watched a programme called The Murder Trial, The Disappearance of Rennie and Andrew McRae on the BBC, as he prosecuted that case. And he has taken on some of the biggest cases in Scottish history. On a rainy spring day, we met at the Crown Office headquarters on Chambers Street in the West End. It's a grand former university building that stands opposite the National Museum of Scotland. Dressed in a dark suit, Mr Prentice is softly spoken with his dark glasses and a reassuring smile. And he talks me through his recollections of his prosecution of Nat Fraser. Mr Prentice had two challenges ahead of him. First, he had to convince the jury that Nat Fraser killed Arlene, even though he had an alibi and no body was found. There are challenges in prosecuting a case without a body um, where it is claimed that murder has been committed. The first thing you've got to prove is that the person is dead. Uh, that is not too difficult nowadays. You would go to, or at least the police would go to the various institutions, national health, um, dental records, banking, finance, um, family, all sorts of things. What Alex is saying here is that in the 21st century, living under the radar is almost impossible without having some sort of ID or bank card. And even then, you'd be extremely unlikely not to be picked up on CCTV or when you need medication or a doctor, especially if you have a condition like Crohn's disease, as Arlene did. So proving that someone is dead is 
generally not that difficult. The problem, of course, is, is the next question. Even if you establish the person is dead, how do you know the person was murdered? Um, and that comes about as a result of the circumstantial evidence surrounding the disappearance. In this case, for example, uh, Arlene just suddenly disappeared um, in the midst of doing the housework and the home and arrangements made for children and meeting yeah. people. Um, so suddenly she's plucked out into thin air, uh, which was out of character. And there's no way she would plan to leave in those circumstances. So that in itself suggested something uh, malevolent was at hand. And then you look at the conduct of those who may be responsible. In other words, why hide a body if it wasn't murder? Who but a murderer would do such a thing? Why would you hide a body unless it's to conceal what happened? In this case, the case against the accused was on the basis that he orchestrated and instructed the disappearance and killing of Arlene Fraser. It was never suggested in court that he himself struck her or did anything to cause her death. Indeed, in the trial, one view of the evidence was that the alibi was just a bit too obvious because he made a point of noticing the time when he spoke to people. Mm. When one looked at the possible motive behind the killing, the benefit uh, from her disappearance and death, and the whole circumstances, including the relationship with the other alleged participants in the case, then that all combined together to provide a fairly compelling case. And the second challenge Mr Prentice faced was what to do about Hector Dick. Hector is a farmer who lives on the outskirts of Elgin. He was Nat's close friend and he admitted buying a car the day before Arlene vanished. It is still not known to this day whether that car was somehow involved in Arlene's disappearance. But Hector was jailed for a year for not telling the police about the car sale. Hector had given evidence at the first trial, but nobody could trust a word that came out of his mouth. On the question of whether to call him or not, it was obvious he was going to be called, whether I called him or the defence called him. Yeah. So I thought, I'll just call him. And I, I seem to remember saying to the jury that they would be very slow to accept everything <laughs> Hector Dick said. However, they might be inclined to accept it where there was independent support yeah. for what he said. That's fair. So, the Crown called Hector Dick to the stand because they knew the defence would call him anyway and they wanted to head off any damage that might do. And then it was time for the verdict. Alan Smith was in court, poised to hear the outcome and, just like the first time round, it was good news. Nat Fraser was guilty. Once we got the conviction the second time, that was that moment also sat in the public gallery was Arlene's close friend, Michelle Scott. I just thought, relief. There's got to be no more. He's not going to appeal again, surely. Again, that's it. That'll be the end of it. And he'll just serve his sentence and there'll be nothing else after that. At last, the court process was finally over for Arlene's family. In 2012, Nat Fraser was jailed for a minimum of 17 years. It means that earliest Nat can apply for parole will be 2029. 
when he will be aged 71, with many years of his life still left to live. He could return to Elgin once he's released from custody and live among the community, still refusing to admit his guilt in taking Arlene's life. With Nat Fraser finally brought to justice for murder, it might seem like the story is over, but it isn't, not for Arlene's family, not by a long shot. Because for them, there are still two major questions looming large. Where is Arlene's body? And what will happen when Nat Fraser leaves custody? Next time on Vanished. I suppose the one question I get asked in the last 25 years more than any other question is, do you think you'll ever reveal our uh, location? Do you think you'll ever give it up? She knew that he didn't love her. We continue to face the fact that we must accept he will never disclose where her remains lie. Mr Fraser, I am a reporter at the Press and Journal. You will no doubt be aware that this year marks the 25th anniversary since the disappearance of Arlene Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. Vanished is a production from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. You can listen to the whole series on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow our podcast page so you never miss a new episode. And why not check out Hunting Mr X, a true crime podcast. This podcast was hosted and reported by me, Dale Haslam. It was produced by Marvin McIntyre and Brendan Duggan. Assistant producer is Megan Avonio. Our head of audiovisual is Mark Asquith. Sharon Livingston is our special projects editor. Head of content development is Richard Prest. Additional online videos by Drew Farrell and Callum Main. Our social media executive is Kitty Ma. Our graphics were made by Roddy Reed.